I'm Dr. Amalia Ganyas Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us in studio today is Professor Natasha Erlank, who trained as an historian, earning her undergraduate honors and master's degrees at the University of Cape Town and her PhD in history from the University of Cambridge. On the professional side, from 2007 through to 2010, she directed the Center for Culture and Languages in Africa, a research unit in the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Johannesburg. And from 2011 to 2015, she headed up the Historical Studies Department at the University of Johannesburg. Welcome to the show, Prof. Lank. Thank you very much, and I'm very happy to be on the show, especially at the beginning of this uh, Heritage Month. We are very pleased that you could join us exactly for that in terms of starting with our first series in Heritage Month. Now, to begin with, you commenced with your career as a historian in 1998. Your work in the gender and social space has covered a range of interests, and I'll mention a few of those titles, The Converted Family Reconstituting African Marriage and Family Life in the 20th Century, Governing Intimacies, Sexualities, Gender and States in the Post-Colonial World, The White Wedding, Effect and Economy in South Africa in the Early 20th Century, Experience and Civic Engagement in Town, Social Capital and Citizenship in South Africa, and then very interestingly one on Memory and City, which we'll delve into a little bit uh, more, more detail later. Firstly, can you share with us what made you choose history as your major subject and future career path? It's an interesting question because I never set out to be a historian. My initial training was in archaeology, and I wanted to become an archaeologist, but I realized I was a useless field archaeologist. I kept tripping over and breaking things. And Which is not what you want when you're trying to no, preserve historical artifacts. It's a very bad trait to have. And one of my archaeology professors very kindly enough suggested to me that, you know, I might be better at history. And in fact, the historians that I studied under at UCT were really great. They were the kind of people that you swapped your degree path out for. And so by the time I'd finished my honors, which was interdisciplinary, which is important, I was really keen to carry on with history. And that's how I ended up in the profession. And you haven't looked back since? I haven't. And I'm grateful every day for the fact that my job is always interesting, always frustrating, but never boring. And I guess no two days are ever the same. Now, reflecting on our past, what would you say have been some of the most poignant moments for women in South Africa? I think probably the most poignant moment in recent memory is uh, the transition to democracy in 1994. And I mention this as being a poignant moment for women too. It's a poignant moment for everyone because it really was a game changer in terms of our recent history. We're 23 some years after that at the moment. The promises of our democratic transformation may not all have been realized, but probably in the last 20 or so years, this is the date that stands out for most people. I could give you a couple of other dates, but I think 
Um, I don't know what the age range of the listeners is, but I generally find, as with my students, the further you go back in the past, the less they have any clue about what you're speaking about. So let's stick with 1994 for the moment. And it was a very important moment in South Africa's history, I mean, having democracy and uh, having the right to, to vote for everybody from an equality perspective. Certainly tremendously important. Now, history gets made every day. But what criterion determine which events are recorded and passed on to the future generations? In other words, what would be remembered and what would we allow to be forgotten? Most professional historians will come up with a fancy formulation uh, which will tell you that history is made by the victors. So it's not at the, the point... Victors. The victors. It's not at the point at which something is happening, that something becomes what a larger grouping of people would consider to be history. It's about dispositions that affect the way in which history plays out afterwards. I I like to think, and um, um, this is what we like to do with students, that that just about anything that happens in your life can be history. Um, And in this country, it's particularly great to think in that way because of long traditions of oral history in South Africa. But the way in which an event subsequently gets remembered has to do with who's in power at the time. And one of the, the, the really intriguing examples for me is the way in which the African National Congress since 1994 has been working on understandings of history which place it much more prominently in the struggle against apartheid in the period before 1994 than, you know, a whole bunch of fairly boring historians, myself included, would probably say was the case. And so it's subsequent to an actual train of events that events often come to have the prominence that they do. That's not including, of course, things like the Twin Towers in 2001, which I think for everyone, anywhere who's alive at the moment, would see as a game changer. You were talking about the event with the Twin Towers, and I can remember the exact moment. I can remember what was happening, what was around me, watching the devastation on the TV screens. And I felt that that was almost living history when we were going through it. I think that's exactly the kind of thing which I would say is the kind of... when, When we can remember where we were on a particular day, those are the kinds of events which you can tell at the time are going to be game changers. So 1994... um, If you're the right generation, you'll remember exactly where you were when you heard that Nelson Mandela had been released from prison. Uh, Going back a few generations, uh, people will remember where they were when they heard about the shootings in Sharpville. Um, You know, most of those people will be a lot older. People will remember where they were when the Twin Towers went down. And there are a couple of other events as well. Um, And those are the kinds of moments where we see change occurring or we see the seeds of something that's been bubbling up coming into existence and then things will never quite be the same again afterwards. Very true. We use different formats to preserve history. You mentioned from an African point of view one of the elements that we're renowned for is about having a rich oral tradition. Mm -hmm. We've also got when streets are being named or renamed statues erected, museums choosing what is going to be housed in the, those, those museums with the, the curatorship, artwork. 
and from a storytelling perspective, either written, spoken, or even cinematic expressions, what role do you think that these touch points play in our world? I think that there are some very interesting observations that we can make about the way in which history gets uh, recorded, the way in which history gets converted into something that we might call heritage, where heritage has a particular meaning linked to something that we can leave. Heritage, we're talking about inheritance, but the idea is not just inheritance from the past. It's about looking forward. What do we leave for the generations that are coming after us? So what is it that we're leaving for the generations that are coming after us? I'm just thinking one of the things that struck me recently is Johnny Clegg performing his final concert, um, again, for South Africans of a certain generation. I think that some of his songs were really um, evocative. They were critically important. He has an international standing. But I've also watched um, videos of old, old footage of him dancing in Zululand in the 1970s, trying to learn the moves to dances. So even dancers themselves, the content of song lyrics can be things that um, get passed down from generation to generation. Some of the isikatamkunya that gets played in the hostels these days is um, full of words that have importance for people. Even um, our uh, President Zuma has been several times linked to the rather controversial uh, lyrics around Umshimi Wam. Um, And those words mean different things to different people. They signify emotions. They signify memories of what the past was like. And they have a really tenacious hold on people, those kinds of uh, forms of history, much more so than the kind of book learning that we do a lot of in universities. And I I think if I had a wish for seeing history go forward. I'd want to see people appreciate more the ordinary versions and the ordinary vehicles of history rather than the kind of stuff that comes over the Discovery Channel or the History Channel or or what people associate with universities because there's so much power in that. And it almost seems to be power of expression, power of experience. If you've experienced it, it has a greater enrichment and seems to have more meaning to you as an individual than if you're just reading something in, in black and white. I think that's true. I think we discount the experiences of, 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 of the body a lot, um, which in South Africa where we have hugely high levels of interpersonal body-to-body violence. It, it's quite odd that we underestimate, um, and here's a fancy word, the somatic... Uh, play out um, somatic of the body in the way in which we experience and understand an event to be happening and later on certain things can cause you to um, revisit and remember quite easily experiences of the past be they good or bad and you can do it through the body as much as something else and that's why the oral word um, the spoken word praise poetry These are also very powerful things. But I just want to go back to the idea of the book for a moment. Um, And, 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 you know, levels of reading are not nearly where they should be at the moment. But in the 19th century, when Africans across the continent were first introduced to things like the Christian Bible, 
they saw the Bible itself, the actual Bible, as having some kind of power. It was a physical item of potency. It wasn't just because of the words inside. You know, Bibles could actually do things. And so the way in which people take items and replay them and redeploy them in different contexts outside of the initial context of use, I think is some of the, uh, you know, really fascinating stuff. And that's what's so fascinating about history is you can follow these paths and you can see these ideas unravel in ways that you never anticipated right from the start. But what we've been talking about now has really been about personal experiences or person-to-person communication. But there's also aspects of things like institutional memory and institutional heritage. So if you go into an organization, you've got the culture of that organization. How do you think that we're able to keep an institutional heritage going? Well, it's an interesting question as well, and I'd say it's not necessarily that different. Generally speaking, in my historical research, I'm interested in a couple of things. I'm deeply interested in the, in the, in, in the politics of gender, in gendered power relations in the past. I'm interested uh, in African Christianity, um, and I'm interested in the intersection between Christianity and tradition. And one of the things that is very obvious is that if you look at institutions like some of the mainline churches or even some of the independent churches, you see institutional power coming to the fore as people reenact on a weekly basis the rituals of the church. So this can be in a small group. It can be one of the groups that's meeting on the copies in Johannesburg, um, some of the Shembi Nazarites. It can be, you know, in in the Anglican church close to you. It can be in one of the Grace Bible churches. But there is a weekly and monthly uh, institutionalized experience of faith that helps to transmit memory as much as anything written down can do that. Um, there are probably some spaces that don't do that, but you see the way in which students are institutionalized into university culture, for instance. The power of the institution acts through them. It's almost osmotic, so it reinforces the memory weekly or daily, depending on what institution you belong to, and you as individuals convey that to other individuals. I think it's a a really interesting Mm. concept. Now, South Africa, as we know, is an incredibly diverse society consisting of people whose original roots stretch the breadth of the globe. And in part, and, and based on what we've been talking about now, a person's present identity stems from their heritage, which comprises of, of histories, those shaped experiences and, and memories, family upbringings, cultural backgrounds, beliefs, as well as place being an important component. But heritage and identity are not fixed. They've got the potential to change as individuals are exposed to new experiences. Can you share with us some of the complexity involved in preserving history and heritage and simultaneously being able to create new traditions or or rituals? I'm probably one of those people who likes to see a more organic approach to preservation. So the kinds of things that excite me are when you get, let's say, a small urban community uh, putting up a mural to commemorate its history. They're doing so in ways that bring the private 
into contact, into conversation with the public in ways that large-scale heritage preservation moments don't really achieve. So for something to continue, it needs to be... I'm probably changing, um, I'm shifting a bit here, I'm, I'm thinking through some ideas. It needs to be accessible. So one of the greatest travesties in the month between um, the two public holidays that are critically important for us, Women's Day in August and Heritage Day in September, the 1956 march on the Union buildings in Pretoria is commemorated by Women's Memorial, which is in the grounds of the Union buildings in Pretoria. But no one can get in to see that memorial. Um, For a variety of reasons, it's closed off to the public. Mostly security reasons are cited as why no one can go and see it. But it's not all that old. It was conceived in the late 1990s, early 2000s. It was commissioned by the state. There could have been some forethought about the fact that, well, if we want people to see it, we need to actually um, put it where they can access. And let's not put it behind a a kind of a – put it in a place where a lot of security is necessary. And so it's like on the one hand you want to commemorate women. On the other hand, you stick them behind a fence and say – I'm talking metaphorically – you know, people can't look at this. It's not accessible to the public. And I, I doubt there are more than, than probably not many people in the country actually realize that there is this memorial to women. Um, and this is something that the state promotes every women's month um, around the 9th of August. And yet there's this monument that no one pays any attention to. At the same time, I have to say, I'm glad to see the Statue of Rhodes at UCT gone. I think that these things do open up wounds. It's not just particular to South Africa. All the protests and the um, clashes that occurred in Charlottesville in the States recently show the real power of this kind of public um, monumental, monumental in the sense of commemorating very large things, but this is also a monument, commemorating parts of history that, you know, a hundred years later, not everyone is so happy commemorating, or people feel it doesn't speak to their own understanding of their identity where they are in a particular moment. So I think there ought to be, you know, the problem with big monuments is that they're there to stay. And, you know, when someone new comes into power or when the public mood changes against them, you know, maybe they need to be redeployed. But sometimes when I think about the negatives, so looking at remnants of, of the old as reminders of, of our past, that, that potentially these reminders should almost be a, a warning to future generations of the mistakes that were made uh, in terms of a blot in humanity as not to repeat them as opposed to removing them totally and that there is no evidence. Well, I think... We could probably all agree, and we don't need any history degrees between us to do so, that knowing something was a bad idea in the past doesn't stop us from trying to repeat it in the present. Knowing that, um, you know, certain kinds of behavior are pretty offensive in the past doesn't stop people trying to practice the same kinds of behavior in the present. But why does it happen? That's the piece that I just cannot get when we think of the wars that repeat themselves and and the issues that keep repeating themselves. What's wrong with us? 
have no idea if I had the answer to that question. Um, I would gladly share it with a whole lot of other people. Things always seem different. I think it takes a certain kind of gaze, and this is where perhaps uh, a, a certain amount of professional experience does count. It takes a certain abstraction from uh, an event or a series of events. It takes a certain kind of experience to be able to say these are the currents that are playing out in what we've seen going on at the moment. A lot of comparisons have been um, raised recently about, um, and I'm speaking about this because I come from a university environment, about the way in which some of the student protests over the last two years have had similarities, differences, but also similarities to what was happening in 1976. And I think that that's a very fruitful kind of route to follow, the kind of examination that might come out of that. Sometimes the most fruitful points might emerge from the fact that there aren't any similarities. But when people are carrying on their everyday lives, it's quite difficult to abstract out of the moment uh, and to see what's going on about you very clearly. At least that's what we have to hope is the case, I think, and that kind of some kind of humanity um, and respect for others, Ubuntu, if you like, will actually prevail. One would hope so. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. Today we're talking to Professor Natasha Erlang, who is a member of the Historical Studies Department at the University of Johannesburg. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Humanity Talk. In the previous segment of the conversation, we spoke about game changers. From a South African perspective, the transition into democracy in 1994 obviously being the most significant. We also spoke about heritage and how it is conveyed through society, whether we've got our rich oral traditions, looking at uh, passing memory on to individuals or even institutional memory, and reflecting on the heritage that we leave for the future generations to come. Prof. Erlang, our program, Womanity, Woman in Unity, is all about gender equality, which is obviously increasingly a global focus, and we've just come out of Women's Month and now moving into Heritage Month. You've done a lot of work within the gender space. Can you shed some light on the findings from your work on gender gains and losses since 1994? One of the things that I want to say is that while some of... The findings from that project were, frankly, quite depressing. Um, I was working with a, a fantastic team of women, and it was really a privilege to be working with some of them. So there are still spaces in academia, and I, and I say this because I want to encourage younger, especially women scholars, not to give up on academia just yet, where you can get, uh, your work can be tremendously rewarding. We were looking, it was, a, it was a project to commemorate the first 10 years of democracy. We've obviously since then had another 10 years plus of democracy. And this was a gender assessment of the first 10 years. And overall, the project findings were a lot more positive than the project findings coming out after the 20-year assessment of democracy, particularly in relation to gender. So what do you see, if I can just sketch a bit of historical background, recent historical Please background, do. is a lot of the people who entered state 
after 1994, who became members of parliament, who joined um, the government, had come out of movements like the UDM, they had come out of civil society, many of them were committed activists. Um, 1985 to 95, now this is what a, it shows you what a rotten historian I am, was the UN International Decade of the Women. And there was a lot of global money uh, coming into the South, the global South, not just South Africa, but also especially South Africa, uh, which aimed to prop up some of the mechanisms of gender um, equality delivery. I'm talking about gender mainstreaming in the state, those kinds of initiatives, um, the various charters on gender equality, um, what they call Beijing and Beijing Plus Five. So there's a whole range of international instruments which are about gender equality. Many of them are focused on quotas on 50-50, on gender parity in the state. And there was some exciting stuff going on. And at that point, I think that the African National Congress as state was really interested in a bunch of these kinds of discussions. And there was a lot of room within the ruling party for looking at ideas of gender. But by the early 2000s, that mood has shifted. A lot of the women um, and the committed gender activists and feminists in the state had gotten cold feet, were not seeing anything happen, and had left the state to go back into civil society. And what you start seeing within the ruling party is an increasing switch to a kind of lip service towards women, which is what we see, unfortunately, today. The ANC Women's League has completely discredited itself as an instrument for women's equality. But none of this was apparent in 2004. It's only over the last 10 years, ironically kind of centered on a middle date of 2009, which is Paula Kwani. And so in retrospect, we can plot some of the shifts onto what's been happening in the ruling uh, party more broadly. But there has been a retreat from that kind of... Uh, enthusiasm for promoting gender equality that we saw in the first decade after democracy. And now it seems like many of the instruments designed to support women are fairly empty. It's, it's, it's really sad, actually. And now we're seeing a pushback against some of the legislation that really helps um, to underpin gender equality in this country, which is not just about, you know, the equality of women. It's it's more broadly. It's about sexual minorities. Um, some of the the proposed bills around, for instance, strengthening the authority of traditional leaders, are not about gender equality. They really are about a certain segment of society wanting to bolster its patriarchal authority. There's no other way to put it. That's very sad. Listening to what you've said, to, to try to stimulate change, to try to improve our lot so that we can continue getting on a, a positive trajectory for equality, do you think that we need to have greater emphasis on legislation moving within the government space? Because in civic society, it seems that there's less power. I suspect that we need to bolster civic society. I'm not sure that the state, and I'm not a political scientist, um, my friends who are always tease me about the fact that I want to go into the past, uh, I'll venture an opinion about the present. I think that the space is not quite right for these developments to happen within the state, which is a way, but I also at the same point want to say that there are 
pockets within the state where you see some fantastic stuff happening. Um, so I don't want to discourage people from seeing the state as a vehicle through which to bring about change, particularly change in relation to gender equality. But I would think that civil society, and we actually do have a vibrant civil society, even if it is very acrimonious and the Twitter sphere is filled with a lot of fairly hateful stuff about sexual minorities, for instance. It is an active sphere, and if we can get, if, if, if people can understand that there's space from which they can do good work, I think that's probably the way to go in the medium term. Dad, turning towards the study, the discipline itself, as a professional woman who's passionate about her field, one of your objectives is to encourage younger women to pursue a career in historical studies. So can you first tell us what would you say is the state of South African feminist scholarship in social sciences? And then secondly, how you can attract more young women into the discipline? It's... An interesting question. I find myself sitting in conferences, professional conferences these days, and I hear myself saying the same things that I said 20, nearly 30 years ago as an enthusiastic graduate student, where I would say things like, well, have you considered the women, or what about the women, and what happens to this picture if you bring gender into this picture? And there was a time, I suppose, again, maybe in the early 2000s, where it seemed to be that gender was going a bit more mainstream in the discipline as a whole. But I think we veered away from that again. It's also a discipline that is being challenged at many different levels. And again, I think it has to do largely with the state of higher education in this country, which is fairly parlous. The... Uh, we're in an interesting moment in the discipline in which um, across the country you're seeing a lot of senior members of staff retiring. They've reached retirement age. A lot of those senior members of staff who happen to be retiring also happen to be men. So there is space for a younger generation of scholars to come up, and there's some fantastic younger women historians uh, in, in departments of history and related departments across the country. And it would be really great if there was some way of, I think, strengthening um, the voices of my younger colleagues uh, in a way that would make them feel that staying within the discipline was a good place to be. Um, some of the things that work against this, I think, are really unpleasant working conditions, huge large class teaching, um, institutions as a whole, not just the discipline, institutions as a whole, which often don't take women particularly seriously, and that's um, irrespective of colour. How can we overcome those issues? Because those are our challenges, they're hurdles, but I think whenever there's a, a challenge, it's an opportunity to overcome it. I know a couple of universities that have really good mentorship programs in place, mm -hmm. For younger women scholars, UJ is one of them, uh, Vitz is another. I mean, people obviously have different experiences of these kinds of programs, but I've seen the kinds of difference that these kinds of programs can have because you help people to navigate the institutional corridors of, of power. Um, so, so the typical things that happen are the, you know, the younger colleagues um, and particularly younger black colleagues 
especially younger black female colleagues, tend to get huge loads of teaching within their departments. They're less able to say no. They take on the additional kind of workloads associated with committee work, the kinds of things that don't lead to promotion. The more savvy men, this isn't all of them, and obviously I don't want to generalize, are more fixed on a career path. They say they're much more empowered to say no. They say no more often. They don't sit on committees. They get published more quickly, so they get promoted more quickly. And so there's a kind of, you know, a whole new set of T-shirts with just say no on them, which need to come out. And it needs to go back into the schools as well. I mean, it's... uh, Younger women teachers in schools, and we quite often see students coming to the university who spent a, a period of time teaching, are not in an easy position vis-a-vis their male colleagues. I think it's different if you're in a Model C school or a private school, but in the vast majority of schools in this country, and we do get a lot of students coming through from teaching, um, the kind of gendered power differentials are really on the side of the men. What's also interesting, of course, is that when I think about the people I know who are working in these mentorship programs, most of them are older women who are able to give such excellent advice because they've... um, They've walked it. They've walked it, yeah. I think also looking at scorecards, trying to do what counts Mm -hmm. as opposed to what else has to be done and, and having a focus on your career. But I think mentorship is by far the greatest component to to help people navigate their career paths and know what to to watch out for. And universities are very tricky spaces. They appear very liberal, but not always. And it's sometimes difficult to figure out which face of the institution you're facing when you're encountering a problem. If people are interested in finding out more information about the mentorship programs, would they be able to contact you? Or is there a particular... Is there a part of the organization, the institution, that they need to make an application to? At the University of Johannesburg, it's called the Accelerated Academic Mentorship Program, um, and it does have someone who runs it. um, But uh, I think anyone who phoned up the university would be able to find out. I'm dating myself by saying phoned up, you know through the Twitterverse or online, we'll be able to find out how to access the program. But that is for people who already are in the employ of the university. So they're aware of, they should be aware of it anyway. And just going back, I mean, actually, now that I think about it, because I've attended quite a few professional development, um, uh, fundraising, women in science initiatives over the last 10 years, including a really great one uh, run by something called SANPAD, which was the South African-Netherlands Partnership for Alternatives in Development. Development. Um, and uh, it particularly brought together women in science and there I met lots of colleagues from other universities and again it's usually the women who are trying to do this kind of mentoring for younger women so you know it's a bit of additional work but I think rewarding oh it certainly is that Prof. Erlach, we're coming towards the end of the show now, and I'd like to switch to more of a a personal um, tone and and perspective with you. One of the questions that I ask all my guests who've made tremendous achievements in their respective uh, fields of expertise is about some of the factors that they consider have contributed to their success. Some people speak about hard work, others talk about perseverance. Some have got particular role models. What would you say have been some of your key factors? To success? 
I think I was very lucky when I began my career as an academic to have a couple of older academics who I could speak to. They weren't mentors. Um, a couple of, you know, I don't think they they were ever at the the institution that I was at currently. But it really helped being able to have a group like that. And then since I've been in Johannesburg. Um, there's a group of mostly women academics that meets on a monthly basis. It's interdisciplinary. Uh, I don't understand some of my colleagues' works, but I love reading their, word, their words and what they've written. And that's the kind of supportive environment that I've found is very enabling. So find sources of support. That's what I'd say. They don't have to come from within academia if you're an academic. They can be somewhere else. And... Talk about your work a lot because you'll find someone who's interested and they can spark something back at you. It's a two-way process. I am here. My work is the result of thousands of conversations with other historians as much as it's my own. And so find yourself a community, a supportive community of practice. It's building those networks. We spoke earlier about, from a heritage point of view, that it's also about what we leave behind for the generations to come. So from your perspective, what legacy would you like to leave behind? I am really happy when we see students come through the department, when we're able to assist them, and then they go out to positions. So I I view it as a kind of, I don't want to say trickle down, but trickle across process. I'm not deluded enough to think that I am solely responsible for kick-starting some amazing careers. But I think that it's in those small ways. When you see someone get a good position, you see what they're doing, and then you say to them, so get yourself a few students as well. Um, see what you can say to them. You know, what was that corny old movie? Uh, I'm sure it had Tom Cruise in it, paid forward. Wasn't it with Rennie Zellweger? So do a bit of paying it forward. And lastly, in closing our conversation today, could you please share a few words of inspiration or wisdom that you'd like to pass on to women in Africa who are listening to the show? I'm going to leave a few words about listening. One of the things that I think people don't really associate with history is the art of listening. Whether you're listening to what's coming at you from a book or whether you're listening to someone else speak. And listening is a real art. So find someone that you don't know much about. It could be a family member and ask them to talk and then keep quiet. Thank you very much for joining us. And thank you for having me. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective, and we have been talking to Professor Natasha Erlank from the Department of Historical Studies at the University of Johannesburg.